0: Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Wherever you are in the world, welcome to the show. This is the Millennial Millionaire Podcast and I am your host, Stephen Cohen. This podcast is focused on bringing some of the wisest minds from across the globe to discuss concepts, strategies, and ideals that have led them to be top performers in their respective industries and their lives. This show is for the millennials and millennials at heart to transcend their mindset, their health, and their income to the next level. We are so excited to have you on this journey with us. Welcome to the show. Yo, 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 what's up guys, Millennial Millionaires, welcome to the show, my name is Steven Cohen and this is one of the first episodes of Millennial Millionaire, where we get some of the brightest young professionals from around the country to talk about their specific niche, concepts, values that have helped them become the person they are today. Today, we have on the show one of my good buddies and as well as my financial advisor, Mr. Connor McCubbin. Uh, Connor is a mechanical engineer major, a math and biology major. He has an MBA in finance from UNLV, and he is partner in the Guida and McCubbin Financial Consultants. And honestly, one of the smartest people that I know. Connor, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Stephen. It's good to be here. Absolutely, man. <laughs> so uh, obviously, you know, we, we talk a lot about finances and really just trying to help people level up in general, their financial literacy. Um, we'll just hop right into it, man. Like, why do you think Most people, most young professionals don't take that step to get an advisor and get educated on one of the most important topics I believe out there, which is financial literacy. At the end of the day, it's not the most important thing in the world, but it is right up there in oxygen.
1: Yeah, so what happens with young professionals is we go through uh, college or our later years of high school, and we really don't get exposure to anything that the financial world has to offer whether that's investments, growing your money, uh, real estate investing, uh, small business investing, entrepreneurship, anything like that. So I do believe it mostly comes from a lack of exposure. And then you start to feel like if you ask questions, if you go out of your way to find answers, that you're already behind the eight ball. Uh, You might feel uh, dumb for asking the questions in the first place or you know, asking your friend or your family member, hey, do you have a financial advisor? Um, so I really think that our education system lets us down in those later years right before we start making money and we get out of college with that degree and hopefully use it to earn income. Uh, I do believe that that's where young professionals are, are misled. Uh, but once they're able to get introduced – there are a lot of financial advisors and institutions out there that won't work with them either, right? So they don't have enough money to get started. Uh, they don't have a big enough portfolio or nest egg uh, for an advisor to work with them or to educate them. So there, there are a lot of things working against young professionals when it comes to financial literacy, uh, when you're in your late teens, early 20s.
0: Yeah, no, I totally get that. I mean, even myself, I would say up until like three or four years ago, I had this negative connotation of financial advisors. You know, I don't know if that came from my parents or just society, but you know, some people are like, oh yeah, you don't need one of those. You're just gonna take your money X, Y, and Z. But if you actually really crunch the numbers, for me, I think my biggest value, cause obviously, you know, we, we work on stock portfolios and all, you know, sort of stuff. But I think my biggest value with, I've been working with you the last couple of years has just been having a resource. Someone who is specialized in this specific field, a third party to give me an objective uh, viewpoint of my finances, certain decisions I make, certain financial purchases I do. And I feel like for people that don't have that third party resource, they just buy stuff off of motion. They're not planning for the future. And as we all know, right, when you, when you fail to plan, you know, you plan to fail what's some things that young professionals could do? You know, maybe they're um, just getting into their career or they're just starting to make decent money. Like, what's some steps, what's some things that they could do to set themselves up for the future to make sure they're in a good position?
1: Yeah, so if they don't have access to a young financial advisor, that will work with them. Some of the things that young professionals can do is get educated by all the avenues that are available at this point. So there's podcasts, there's books, there's books, Um, even Instagram and TikTok reels can be very uh, helpful to understanding certain concepts. Now, you need to take everything out there with a grain of salt. Um, We have our Dave Ramsey's of the world that are very conservative, no debt, no credit cards. And then we have folks out there that are really big on just investing in real estate. So you really have to go out there, educate yourself on what's there and kind of find what works for you. And that's a great way to start just by getting educated. After that, you really need to take a step, but there's so many tools out there now that that our parents didn't have access to. You can start an Acorns account. You can open a Charles Schwab account. You can really invest on a small level on so many different platforms, and they make it very efficient and low cost to do so. Um, So there are resources out there for young professionals to get started, uh, but it's really hard to take that first step because it is a scary step to put your hard earned money into something like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you've come into our sales teams and and have done a training on this, but something I preach on, especially for people in my industry, direct salespeople who are making pretty good money, 70, 80, 100, 150, 200, $250,000 a year at a pretty young age considering is I think the habit is more important than the actual dollar amount. Um, To your point, you say people don't start because of the unknown. And, you know, as we all know, when things are unknown and they're not familiar, it tends to be a little bit harder to take action. But in my own personal experience, I remember being... 23, 24 years old, making six figures, living in San Jose, living a good lifestyle. And then I realized at the end of the year, I had nothing to show for it other than, you know, my Instagram stories and cool experiences. But I didn't have any financial uh, progress in terms of my net worth, my investing account, so on and so forth. So I feel like for most people, it's more important to get the habit down start today. um, Because as the habit gets ingrained into you, then you can always increase the quantity as your, as your uh, income goes up. Um, But I feel like for people that never get started and they don't develop the habit because they're waiting to make more money or because, you know, they have these bills that they need to pay first. I think just investing first and then spending later um, is super important what would you tell those people out there who maybe are making decent money? Maybe they have, you know, a nice car, a good lifestyle, but for some reason they're not focused as much on their net worth as maybe they should be if they're trying to reach their financial goals.
1: So I think, I think you bring up two points that I would want to cover there. One is the idea that if you can't do it while you're making peanuts, you're not going to be able to do it when you're making all the money in the world. Right. Facts. So that's number one. Number two I really do think that people, when they start to make more and more money, and it starts to accelerate fast on them, they start to make financial decisions that are even further ahead than what their earning is telling them to do. So I'll start with the first one. Um, a lot of folks, it is tough to live out here. Inflation makes it harder to live a nice lifestyle that most people are comfortable with. So that leads them to not saving as much when they're making peanuts. Now, that creates a problem moving forward because now you don't have the habit. It's easy to go from a place that's $1,000 in rent, doubling your income, and then finding a place that's $2,000 or $3,000 in rent. There's always going to be more things to spend money on. Mm -hmm. You could go from a Toyota Camry up into a Mercedes, up into a Urus, up into a Ferrari. You can just keep spending more and more money. So we... Young professionals have to realize that just because people have those things or have money doesn't mean that those folks that they're idolizing have a net worth to back up what they visually see. Mm. So it is very important to start those habits early so that when you start to make more and more money, you do have something to show for it at the end of the year.
0: How detrimental do you think is culture and social media and the current information age when it comes to young professionals and really making sure they set themselves up for their future. I know even in my industry, I see it all the time where people are overextending themselves for things that aren't really important just to feel like they're keeping up with the Joneses or because they saw this, you know, Instagram millionaire buy a Uris and he said that you should buy a Uris. How detrimental is that (laughs) to long term freedom? (laughs)
1: It's extremely harmful. It's it's harmful up front because you may extend yourself on a monthly payment with a car. You may extend yourself by buying a house you can't afford. And what that can do is that can set you up to be underwater in those assets if something were to happen with the market. So it is detrimental up front. I would say the greater problem is long-term, and that is because... Long-term, if you always feel like you're having to catch up, what that does to your risk profile when you're investing is it increases it to an unhealthy amount. So instead of someone saying, I really like the return of Berkshire Hathaway over the long-term or Amazon over the long-term, they will say, I see a penny stock that one of my friends has told me about and I think that if I can put a couple bucks into that penny stock, I can get an unrealistic return in a short amount of time. And that will lead me to be able to achieve some of the things you're talking about, like buying a nicer car that they may not be able to afford. And over the long term, continuing to pile up bad investments with way too high of a risk, that is going to lead to someone that's always going to be playing catch up. And playing catch up over the long term does not lead to good decisions. It really creates that gambler's fallacy that I lost once. So I need to double down and make it up with another risky investment.
0: What is your perspective when it comes to risk tolerance, specific investments? You know, we'll go all over the place in a little bit in terms of crypto, NFT, stocks, real estate, you know, business ventures. But we'll stay on stocks in that area for a second what is your strategy or advice or perspective for people that wanting to get involved in the stock market, take advantage of, you know, the compounded interest, but uh, maybe aren't super experienced?
1: So it's great for them to, to start off with an understanding of what the different types of investments are. Um, I know that that's not going to be something that's available to young professionals on a wide level. So it's something that, You know, I offer because I know it's very important for young professionals to understand the difference between an index fund and an exchange-traded fund and a mutual fund and an individual stock. And they need to understand the difference between active and passive management, and they need to understand the difference between all the expense ratios that come with those investments and the different risk profiles that they have. So with that... If you can't work with a professional that can explain that to you as part of the service before you start investing, it really starts with just educating yourself. I would say young professionals could start on any of those levels and be okay getting their feet wet because they are going to learn something from just having skin in the game at that point. They'll learn about market volatility. They'll learn about their investments. uh, They'll learn about taking the emotion out of it. Uh, they'll learn a lot from just having skin in the game immediately. And you can do that with an S&P 500 index. You can do that with a mutual fund. You can do that on a lot of different platforms.
0: You spoke on active investments versus passive investments. And that is something that I've learned a lot about over the last two, three years. And I think what goes synonymous with that is an investor versus a trader. Um, And that mindset. You know, there's so many people out there um, who are on Forex or crypto or flipping NFTs um, or even house flippers. I would heavily consider that, I wouldn't consider that investing. I consider that trading or, or flipping where you're essentially obviously trying to make a commission from that. And I think a lot of people get confused between that and real investing. Um, I believe real investing is putting your money in something that's going to be long-term. It's going to pay out monthly cash flow potentially, but if not for sure, appreciate over a long enough time horizon where trading is more of it's Calculated gambling in a sense where you're applying a skill set, but it's more of an active um, type of position. Can you touch a little bit on maybe the difference between active and passive in your space?
1: So, in my space, actively managed versus passively managed really comes down to uh, is there any level of trading happening throughout the year or is it just following an index? So, the SP 500 index is just that it's an index and that is a passively managed asset so whether that S&P 500 index is held through Fidelity or it's held through the S&P Standard & Poor's um, they're tracking the S&P 500 now the trades that'll happen inside of an S&P 500 will be along the lines of you know J C Penney or Sears going out of business being removed from the S&P 500 and something new like a Tesla being added to the S&P 500. It's not really a trade. It's really just keeping up with the economy. What companies are in, what companies are out. Now, actively managed in the investment world is like a mutual fund. And a mutual fund has the ability to trade uh, their stock positions on a daily basis if they see fit. So there is going to be a team of advisors and account managers on a mutual fund that will make those decisions. So for example, if Tesla comes out with a great earnings report and a fund manager sees them as a great long-term hold, they may increase their shares in Tesla after that earnings report. S&P 500 index is not going to make a move after an earnings report. So that's the difference between passively and actively managed funds.
0: Got it. And I think that's really important to understand because you know obviously you're, um, spe- you know you're specialized in the space. You know you went to school for this. Um, you spent time and energy. This is your full time job is managing wealth, helping people increase their net worth. Where I feel like most people out there, their main job isn't that. Their main job is their sales career, or it's their part-time business, or it's their job that they're working right now, where they don't have enough time, energy, or resources to try and time the market and try and take their $1,000 and go make it $2,000. It's a lot better of an opportunity for you to double down on your skill set, your earned income. To hopefully multiply that so you have more money to invest in in the first place um, and spend that time and energy getting better at your craft and delegate that investing strategy, especially when you don't have that much money to start to someone else because your ROI is gonna be a lot higher in the thing that's gonna make you a lot of money. Um Connor, for most people, why do you think they never reach their net worth goals? Um, cause I'm, I'm sure, you know, you have a lot of people, um, you know, that come to you and they, they say, Hey, I want this level of income or this level of net worth, or, you know, I'm trying to get this much passive income. Um, but I imagine, you know, most people don't follow through on the action plan that you guys set. Why do you think that is?
1: So that, that is a great, that is a great point. That is, I like talking about that for sure. We can run compound interest calculators all day. And everybody loves running the calculator. And that's, you know, a calculator is just going to show you if I put in X amount of dollars on a monthly basis or annual basis, how much will I have in 30 years, 40 years, 50 years? Um, And with life expectancy just increasing, the numbers can get very big and can look very attractive. But the reason why there's not millionaires running around town is because it's very hard to achieve a long-term strategy that folks will be consistent with. So it definitely comes from creating a habit and sticking to it. And I think most folks will get to a point where they don't make enough good decisions over the course of time, or they make too many hasty decisions early on. And once you get off track and once you feel like you're behind, it's very tough to get back in the mindset of let's keep going long term. Let's stick to the plan and let's realize our goals.
0: Mm, That makes a lot of sense. Do you have some type of ratio? You know, you always see these experts, whether it's on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram, they're like, you should save. 30% of your income, invest 30%, put 30% to taxes and live off 10%. Do you have a ratio that you would advise people um, from their spending to investing to saving that you would recommend?
1: That's a great question. So most people who delegate information on a broad level will stick to those. I always roll with customizations. So when it comes to a certain investor's profile, I think it changes for everybody. If that person really has a goal and a comfortability with owning a, a property, that may come at a little bit higher cost than what I would like to see them spending on an annual basis on a mortgage. But for that investor, that may be a long-term goal that sets him up well mentally and physically to make other parts of his portfolio come to life once he has that security. So I don't have a generalization, but I do have thresholds I like to stay between or bands I like to stay between. So when it comes to, you know, primary residence, I like to see it between uh, 10 and 30%. I really don't like to see folks spending more than 30% of their overall income on their primary residence. Uh, When it comes to automobiles, I like to see that between 5 and 12%. And I really get uncomfortable with car payments that are reaching up into more than 12% of folks' annual incomes. Uh, but like I said, the numbers change based on the individual situation. If there's a young professional out there that needs to have a nice car to recruit for a certain reason or needs to have a car to haul for his business, um, or drive for a ride-share business. Whatever the case is, there are bands there to kind of fluctuate for those instances
0: is there a line because you know it's funny that you said that I justify most of my purchases with oh that's going to help with recruiting that's going to help bring in X amount of recruits which will bring in X amount uh, of you know of revenue obviously you know with a nicer car nice watch nice lifestyle you're more um, attractive to people looking for the po- uh, potential opportunity of what you have to offer is there a line that you'd recommend because I feel like I sometimes just you know any little thing I'm like oh that's that's good for recruiting but sometimes I feel like I'm just justifying
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So I do see that um, once you get that first purchase that is recruitment-oriented done, it does kind of lead to, well, what else can I purchase to bring that recruit a little closer? I think the line, depending on how transparent you want to be with your net worth and your holdings, I think that if young professionals that are in a position of influence that want to recruit Feel transparent enough because our generation is a little more transparent with finances than our parents and our grandparents were. That was a very hushed topic. You don't talk about certain things at the dinner table. You don't talk about religion. Taboo. Exactly right. You don't talk about finance. Um, this, This generation will talk about finance. They will be transparent about income. I think we can use that as a tool instead of flexing with yet another a pair of Gucci shoes or yet another watch or yet another car, right? If we can change that to one or two items to get the initial wow factor of a recruitment, but then we can say, and I've been able to build a net worth and be transparent about, look how much I've been able to save with what I am bringing you into. You're going to have an opportunity to become someone like me who has nice things and takes nice trips and eats nice meals, but also has something behind the scenes that gives me stability and a net worth. I think that drawing the line at the bigger items, one or two, three purchases in, is a great place to say, you know what, I think I've got enough to lure them in, and then let yourself and your net worth do the rest.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that's really important for you listeners to understand I feel like even for myself, for the longest time, I was always so focused on income. Um, how much money am I making? You know, is my money, go, is my income going up year after year? Which is important. You know, that's really the start of the formula. You can't save money or invest money if you're not making money. But it wasn't till I would say probably three or four years into my my career that I really made the shift where I didn't focus as much of how much money is in my bank account, or how much money that I made that month that that quarter that year, but more I got more excited about seeing my net worth gradually increase over time. Can you speak about that a little bit of maybe for young professionals making that shift or just kind of explaining the difference between making a lot of money and having a high net worth?
1: I I have an anecdote uh, recently that I think speaks to when young professionals make the shift, um, and maybe in this anecdote I can I can find uh, an answer to giving advice on how to make the shift. It's very hard unless you experience it. Uh, I know you talk about, it, you know, what's what's the line you have about if you can learn from others' mistakes.
0: Yep, if you can learn from others' mistakes. Smart people learn from other uh, from their own mistakes. Brilliant people learn from exactly. other people's mistakes. Exactly. So.
1: The anecdote recently is, obviously, everyone knows around this time, we're going through a little bit of an economic recession. Um, we might have a more recession term slapped on it here in a couple months, but we're already in the midst of a valley in the market, uh, in all the markets. And young professionals that have been consistent with the plan since day one of putting away money, investing, no matter if we're at market lows or market highs, what I'm seeing now when the market is turning the way it is, the conversations that myself and those clients are having is very much based on, look how much money I've been able to save up into this point. They've got the experience of the ups and downs. They live through COVID. They live through the rebound. They live through inflation. They live through a war in Europe. They're living through this. They understand that the market will move up and down. What they're focused on and what I'm so proud that they're focused on is, look how much I was able to save. They were able to keep living their same lifestyles, keep affording their same meals, their same living situations, their same vehicles, but they're so proud of the fact that there's money somewhere that is growing or in a position to grow that they've been able to hold on to because they know if that they didn't save, where would it have been? Maybe it would have been on overpaying for something that they shouldn't have been affording in the first place. Maybe it would have been adding another subscription service on a monthly basis. Maybe it would have been another luxury item, whatever the case is. So to answer your initial question of can we stop focusing on what we have in the short term and then building this net worth, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. Young professionals that get down that road and really see what they're able to keep. It's making them very proud of themselves and I, and I'm very thankful for it. And I think that it's a good indicator that in the future, more of us young professionals and more folks that have the chance to work with someone to save, to grow their net worth behind the scenes are going to stick to the plan and we're going to have a lot of millionaires for it in 10, 20, 30 years But as far as what can someone do right now to stop focusing on it, they just have to bite the bullet and get started or they have to go meet with a financial advisor because that accountability is huge. It's very easy for a young professional to start saving on their app, on their phone, but as easy as it was for them to start saving, it's that easy to cash it out, sell everything in there, and wipe all their savings out.
0: Hype buy and panic sell. Exactly right. Is cursing this generation. And, uh, you know, I mean, when you get into different rooms of eight, nine figure earners, right, these people aren't talking about how much money they made last year or, you know, any of that. They're talking about their net worth uh, accumulation of all their assets, their businesses um, and the things they created. So super, super important, guys. Let's uh, let's pivot a little bit um, let's talk about crypto, uh, a very interesting topic, very hot topic. Um, obviously the market's down just, just about like everything else. Um, but coming from more of a traditional, um, approach to finances and NFTs and cryptocurrency, more of a modern take of what's going on. Um, what is your perspective on crypto? Is it a viable investment, risky investment, speculation? Is it something people should add to their portfolio or is there something they should just take their blackjack money and throw it into?
1: Ah, oh, putting me in a tough spot here with crypto. So I can tell you all the different perspectives of what I've heard, and and I think that that'll be the, the best way for me to go about answering this. So some folks see it as a replacement for holding gold, silver, and all the precious metals. Some folks see it as a eventual replacement for the dollar. Um, crypto, from a financial standpoint, is not ever going to be looked at as an option for investing until they figure out the answer between, is it a currency or is it an investment? And right now it's acting like an investment. So that is going to stop cryptocurrency from being too mainstream, right? You will see it in accounts as getting to invest in cryptocurrencies, but you're not going to see it at the institutional level with, you know, broad retirement plans, offering it through, through institutions. Um, many fiduciaries won't be able to touch it with a 10-foot pole until that question is answered. In the meantime, I know that young professionals are going to be investing in this a lot more than more matured folks who have built portfolios and, and are close to retirement. It's in our world a lot more than it is in their world. Uh, you know, We can easily invest in it on Venmo, PayPal, all these different platforms are throwing it in our faces. Hey, do you want to invest five bucks in Ethereum? Hey, do you want to invest 10 bucks in Bitcoin? I see it as an asset. I do not see it as a currency quite yet. But the folks that are making the leap and investing in crypto really have to have an understanding and a belief system behind it. And you have to treat it like you're investing in a uh, speculative stock. And what I mean by that is you have to do a lot more research than maybe you would if you were investing in a Berkshire Hathaway who has a track record. And you really have to know that you are going to be in for swings in the market. It can go down 60%. It can go up 120%. And with that comes an investor profile and a diligence that not many people are prepared for. They will buy at the wrong time. They will sell at the wrong time.
0: Traders, not investors, right?
1: Exactly right. right. So crypto is really attractive to the trading type.
0: Understanding compound interest, dollar cost averaging, and then diversification. I feel like those three key principles for people listening that you want to get started in investing in anything, whether that's real estate, crypto, stocks, whatever, if you can just follow and understand those three principles, you'll be in a pretty good shape over a long time. You know, term situation. In terms of diversification, Connor, um, so I've heard from multiple people and their investment thesis is that you know, one guy's is 35% should be low risk, 35% medium risk, 35% high risk. For example, 35% should be your mutual funds, you know, your Roth ROAs, your bonds, the stuff that's not going to get you a super high return, four, five, six percent, hopefully, but are super safe. You know, they're going to be there for the long term, et cetera. The middle bucket should be more middle risk-like investments, like maybe real estate, maybe individual stocks, um, stuff that's a little bit riskier, but still pretty safe. You know, if you hold it over the long-term, you'll get that 12 to 16% um, for the most part, and it's not going anywhere. And then you have your Third tier, which is your high risk, which is that last bucket. That's going to be your crypto, you know, your small business investing, uh, maybe your hard money loans, like whatever that is, to get a higher return, but obviously higher risk. Do you believe investors starting out should have something like that, or do you lean heavier into one side or the other?
1: Yeah, so I'll I'll tell you what I do for clients, so you know I'm not just kind of spilling what I potentially would do. I'll tell you what I actually do, and there's proof in the pudding here for how I go about this. So, obviously for individual investors, you have to understand your goals. So, if someone said, "Hey, I'm putting this money away into a Roth IRA for the long term and, you know, they're starting out in their 20s." They're not going to be able to touch that money without a penalty until 59 and a half years old. There is no reason to have anything but super high growth aggressive type assets in that Roth IRA at that point. Now, when it comes to a brokerage account, something more liquid, something that a client might work out of on a monthly basis, uh, in terms of putting a down payment on a car, a house, taking out money to take their family on an annual vacation, whatever the case may be. Now we're getting into a situation where we need to evaluate the market itself at the time, We need to evaluate the time horizon of that payment, you know, whatever it's for. And we also need to evaluate how much of it we want to keep going for that long term. So after we make that evaluation, if someone doesn't have a payment coming up and they just want to go all out aggressive and try to grow that thing as quickly as possible, we will be going for those high growth stocks and those high growth mutual funds. And we would be shooting for, you know, the 8%, 9% range. Um, there's plenty of funds out there that have a higher track record than that. But I, you know, as most people should do, let's go in with an expectation of a little bit lower and let's be surprised if it, if it overshoots. Um, if someone said, Hey, in three to five years, I do want to put down a sizable down payment on a home. That's something we need to evaluate the situation at hand. So if we're in a a period like today in the middle of 2022, plenty of market volatility, plenty of inflation, you're you're going into a volatile time here. And there's not really writing on the wall that says this is all going to be cleaned up by the midterm election or a changing of the guard uh, in in our White House. So with that, we have to be a little bit more careful. And maybe we lean a little bit more conservative with those investments to try to grow your money so it's not getting eating eaten up by inflation in your savings account, but also not put it on a risky roller coaster. And what we're looking to avoid there is right before you and your family goes to put down money on a house that you love, that you toured, that you're ready to buy, and now, you know, you're you're incurring a 10% loss. You know, you're realizing a loss on the way out and putting money down for that. And then we're no better off than just keeping in the savings account at that point. So we're going to take a little bit more of a conservative approach with that, maybe get some fixed income, something that we can reliably get 4%, 5% on. And with interest rates rising, those, are, those returns are more attainable than they were uh, back when we were in a lower interest rate environment. So that type of customization will come with working with our financial advisory firm. I can't say every financial advisor. Plug advisory. them. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we we take it case by case because everybody's goals are different. And we would hate to put you in a situation just by saying, oh, you're young. Let's go aggressive. But I definitely don't think a one size fits all of, you know, 33 and a third percent across the board uh, is appropriate for everybody.
0: Yeah. A lot of different places you can hold your money, guys. It's just all about understanding what your goals are, where your income is, what your your strategy is, and making sure that you place that money specifically and intentionally to get the best result. But if you're not educated... You're going to end up like a trader and ended up losing money. You know, what does Warren Buffett say? His number one golden rule to investing is just don't lose money, which unfortunately if I lost money, I'm sure a lot of people have lost money, but by just understanding that and just making sure that you're growing consistently every single year, you're going to get to your net worth goals. Connor, let's talk about taxes. Um, something that all of us uh, know about and all of us have to pay living in the great state, uh, the you know, the great country of the United States. Um, how important is it for young professionals? Obviously, you're not a CPA. You, know, you don't give, uh, you know, tax advice. But how important is it for uh, in terms of building wealth and, you know, saving the most money that they can to have a base understanding of taxes. You know, something I always talk about is taxes is taxes is going to be the most expensive bill that you'll ever pay in your life. It's more than your mortgage. You know, it's more than your wife or girlfriend spending needs. It's more than your car payment. It's more than your vacations. It's going to be the most expensive bill you ever pay in your life. So being able to understand how to minimize that I think is extremely important.
1: Yeah. So I'll take this in, in two buckets. So, Everyone knows most people are in two types of getting paid, uh, two brackets here. So you got the W-2 bracket, which means you work for an institution, you're being paid by them, and you might have some benefits to work with there. W-2 folks are very limited to what they can do with taxes. Now, what I do see is W-2 folks will still use tax services. Unfortunately, you're paying for something that should be free. You should be able to go through the IRS website and get that done for free, right? The government wants your money. They're not going to put any friction between you filing your taxes and them getting their money, right? So they're going to make it free. But you do still see people use the TurboTax and use the H&R blocks and all those types of places. So you're giving up an extra couple hundred dollars on an annual basis that you really don't have to be giving up. So one of the things that my firm does is we provide – A, we, I work with a CPA that comes out and we allow W2 clients to come out and listen to a CPA, walk them through how to use the IRS website. So it's just another little value add to say, Hey, don't waste your $150 on TurboTax. Don't, don't waste your $200 at H&R Block filing something that you could easily do. The taxes have already been taken out. You're just filing it to say, yeah, everything looks good. Or if there's anything else you've done. Now, moving over into the second bucket, 1099 folks are, you know, the ones that have the LLC S-Corps, the ones that have multiple streams of income, uh, the ones that don't get maybe benefits straight from an employer because they're receiving a commission or they're receiving consulting income. It is important for those folks to get with a tax advisor, that can walk them through what's important for them to know on an annual recurring basis. How every, Everybody's different. Some people like to print receipts out when they have expenses. Some people like to put it all on one credit card. Working with a tax advisor can really help a 1099 entrepreneur lock in what the best route is for them to save as much money as possible at tax time. And whether that's a retirement plan, whether that's tracking your expenses more closely, whether that's purchasing one vehicle over another vehicle, uh, whether it's writing off a square footage in your home that you use for an office space, it really comes down to setting yourself up in a situation where you can acquire the knowledge and put it to work. And the knowledge that is acquired on a broad level from places that just kind of get give that you know, 35,000 foot overlook of taxes. That's great. But really working with someone who can talk specifically to your situation and wants to understand your situation, that's going to lead you to find something that you can actually have actionable in the next year to reduce your tax liability in the following April.
0: Love that guys. I hope you're listening. Finding a tax professional has been a game changer in my business. Um, Saved me hundreds of thousands of dollars over the last, you know, six seven years. And uh, for those that aren't educated, you get take advantage of. Unfortunately, Connor. Last thing I wanted to talk about, and then we'll we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Let's talk about real estate. So we, we've talked at a at a fifty thousand, you know, uh, you know level in terms of investing, right? We have stocks, we have Ross, we have Seps, we have the paper. Um, you know, uh, that aspect of it. We talked about, you know, some of the newer stuff like crypto, NFTs. We talked about taxes. Obviously, there's some things that, you know, 1099 people can do to reduce their liability. Real estate has been, I feel like at least for millennials and young professionals, something that has been, you know, kind of almost brought, um, a lot more to light, I would say over the last five to six years with a lot of the influencers out there and a lot of the content being made, it comes to real estate and how you can get tax advantages and cash flow and appreciation and all these certain things with refinancing and stuff. What is your take when it comes to real estate for being an investment, not necessarily just buying a house, the American dream living there, which as we all know, you know, isn't necessarily true anymore, but when it comes to having that as an investment class, what's your standpoint on that?
1: I think real estate has its place in everyone's portfolio, whether it's the primary residence or the uh, secondary property. Um, I think that it has been potentially overblown as far as how easy it is for people to get into real estate. I see so many different, and I'll throw air quotes around educational videos on real estate that make it seem uh, too easy and too attainable, almost like a no-brainer. Well, I, I don't want to be the one to break it to you. Anything that gets sold as a no-brainer, you, I, we all know, you usually want to stay away from that, right? If a used car salesman said, oh, well, this is a no-brainer for you, we want to run the other direction. So when it comes to that, I, I really think it has to fit in with the core competencies and the core investment strategy of an individual. So the clients of mine that really lean towards real estate and I'm totally fine with it. I love that that's in their in their nature. It's because a couple of things have occurred. One, their family might have had real estate property, so they're into the notion of I need to take care of it. I know what needs to happen. I need to, you know, hire a management team to rent it out. I know that I need a, a realtor looking for me. Um, I know that the certain risks that come with it, right, during COVID, some of these folks didn't get paid. They were waiting on checks, uh, squatters. All these types of things can come up. Those folks are more, uh, they have a better intuition and they have a better experience base with how real estate works. So I think for those folks, it's definitely something that it's, you know, your family did it. You want to aspire to have something just like your mom and dad did. Um, I totally understand that. And those folks definitely lean a little bit more heavy in there. I think where I see a little bit of the friction with real estate is the group that wants to start from having nothing saved, nothing in their brokerage accounts, nothing in their retirement accounts, and they think they're just going to go build uh, a, a wealth in real estate. Um, with no core competencies. They don't come from a real real estate background. They're not selling mortgages. They're not working in the, in the realty field. Um, they're not, you know, attached with a best friend who's in the field. And they just have heard so much about real estate that they end up just thinking, oh, well, it's, it's pretty easy. I just got to find a spot, make a deal, and then cash flow. It's not that easy, as you know, Stephen. I mean, you've got you've got properties as well. It's just not that easy. So, what's what my take on real estate right now is with interest rates rising, with the fact that going into um, secondary properties and investment properties, the upfront capital needed to even get into the house is is large, and most places you'll look at the amount of rental income that you could potentially get from it comes nowhere near what your mortgage is going to be if you just do the minimum, right? I think that's what's really tough for me in looking at real estate. And of course, there's options to flip houses and things like that. But the folks that have the core competencies and the vertical integration of having a contractor that they've been working with for 5 to 10 years, uh, having the people in place to execute these flips in a timely manner, they're the ones that are going to take advantage of this. Um, so I do think that there's a little misinformation out there about just how easy it is. And I don't think that that's out there about the stock market. Cause as we just talked about, there's not a bunch of millionaires walking around out here, but most people have heard at some point in their twenties or thirties. If I just save in the stock market, I know it'll compound to a greater degree. But you don't hear the same buzzes because it, it is a little bit longer-term game. It is a little harder. It does require a little more discipline. Um, but that's kind of my stance on how they, how I think about each one of them.
0: Very well said, my friend. Guys, if I think overall some of the key takeaways um, that you guys can get from this show is just get started. Get educated. Get started. There's a great book that I would recommend – um, all about just the, the fundamentals of investing, the, the, the richest man in Babylon. It's a phenomenal story of just about paying yourself first and understanding that it doesn't matter of how much you start, but it's the fact that you get started, build the routine, build the habits. And then as your income increases, uh, that investment size will increase as well. Connor, anything else that you'd like to share with the viewers? Any last words? Any last piece of advice you'd give to young professionals out there trying to create wealth, trying to create that that lifestyle that they dream of but still have yet to find or on their way but a little bit of fuel to the fire? Yeah, so that's
1: – I'm glad you're giving me the opportunity to end with this because you know I go out with uh, your sales team – A couple other folks in our network, I present to their sales teams. And I do that so I can put information in front of young professionals. So there's no excuse down the line to say, I'm now 45. I never knew about this. I never knew that there was opportunities out here. Well, yes, you did. You knew it. 20 years old, 21 years old, 22 years old. And I do that for free because I know it's going to make that much of a difference for them long term. The other great thing that comes from me working with young professionals, presenting in front of them, working with over 150 of them as clients is I get a lot of experience that isn't just one-off anecdotes. I get to build threads of I see this as a pattern through 150 young professionals. And some of them are really good patterns, like I alluded to earlier. Young professionals are very proud of themselves when they see what they've been able to save. And you have to take time to be proud of yourself and say, look at how much I've accumulated in just a short amount of time. And if I just keep up with this routine, I'm going to be absolutely wealthy in decades. Um, And some of them are not so great. And some of those not so great ones that I would like to warn the listeners about are young professionals right now are under the most pressure in our history to become wealthy, at a younger age. And I believe that that is a pandemic. Numbers are coming out all the time about, from Fidelity, about their retirement plans, that there are more and more millionaires. Those millionaires are in their 50s, 60s, 70 years old. Young professionals that we work with, they want to be millionaires tomorrow, in three years, in five years, And while that's great to keep a fire lit under them and work hard and aspire to be a millionaire quick, what I'm saying is the pandemic of it all is it's leading them to take investments on, business opportunities on, and risk on that is not appropriate for long-term wealth building. And that is the pandemic of it all that I would like to warn the listeners about to say everything you see And we're going to go back to Warren Buffett here. Warren Buffett says no to nine out of ten opportunities that comes his way. That's Warren Buffett. Most young professionals say yes to every opportunity that comes their way. That is the pandemic that we're facing as young professionals. A small business is getting started and a young professional is thinking, I am so special that I got put in front of this deal. Let me give them money. Without vetting the person, without looking for a track record, without looking at the numbers of a business, and I've seen it over and over and over again. That money is gone. That money is flushed down the drain. Some of it from fraudulent activity. Some of it from bad investing. Some of it from failed business. That is what we're up against, and that, that's what I would want to end with, and I've added it to my slides as a warning. Give yourself time to come into your wealth. It does not need to happen over time. You know, Stephen, working with me, I'm all about the long term. Everything that's set up for me that I've done, even with my business practices, even with my investment style, it is all about long term. If something seems too good to be true, I like to vet it a little bit further if something seems too speculative, I like to reduce the amount I'm putting in. And I would give that advice to any young professional that is coming into money that wants to grow their net worth. Just be careful. It'll all come in time. Give yourself the time to build the net worth.
0: Sound advice worth millions of potential losses. Connor has been absolutely phenomenal, man. Appreciate you having you on the show. I know you're not big on social media, but where can some of the listeners find you if they want to get connected with you, potentially seek out some of your services um, and get connected?
1: So you can go to www.gm-fc.com and you can reach out through our website portal. Uh, You can also email me at Connor, C-O-N-N-E-R at gm-fc.com. And I'm sure Stephen will put a link up uh, to my email so you can just reach out through um, that line of communication. But I'm always open to taking more meetings with young professionals. It is my core competency. I know any problem that could arise with young professionals, I'm sure it's come up in the 150 that I've worked with up to this point. And I love working with young professionals because it's a market that is completely underserved. So it's definitely my passion.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it from one of the best. As always, millennial millionaires and aspiring millennial millionaires, we'll talk to you next time on the next episode.